almost too beautiful to talk over. Yes, side two of the Sunday Morning Hangover here with your host, the Reverend Mark Time. This hour, we're talking about Margot Gurian, born in Rockaway Beach, New York City, singer-songwriter from the 60s and 70s, known for her 1968 classic album, Take a Picture. Her songs have been recorded by Mama Cass, Glenn Campbell, Astrid Gilberto, among others, Oliver. She grew up in the suburbs of New York, took an interest in music at an early age, went to BU, Boston University, studied classical jazz piano, and hung out with guys like Bill Evans and Ornette Coleman. She was primarily a jazz musician until a friend made her listen to the song, this song, God Only Knows, by the album Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. She says, according to Gurian, quote, I thought it was just gorgeous. I bought the record and played it a million times. And then I sat down and wrote Think of Rain, a song that we'll be playing in a minute. That's really how I started writing. I just decided it was better than what was happening in jazz. I'm going to play for you a track that she wrote, covered by Claudine Langer, called Think of Rain. the 60s were a little bit different because they had singers and then they had songwriters. She was primarily a songwriter because she had stage fright. Margot Gurian is who we're talking about. That song covered by Claudine Langer 
And uh, like this is from an article by Lawrence K. It's a review of Take a Picture. This appeared in SF Weekly. Like most great musical mysterios, Margot Gurian elicits comparison with her contemporaries. As a composer, she was neither as solid nor rigid as the brill-building tunesmiths, Carol King and Ellie Greenwich, yet she expanded greatly on their uniquely female perspectives. As a performer, Margot Gurian used a thin voice reminiscent of Marion Faithfull's earlier work when Faithfull was still a prefab starlet struggling, and lyrics steeped in suppressed, strangled emotion. Of course, uh... The big hit that Margot had in the 60s was a song called Sunday Morning, which you hear on my promo here on the Sunday Morning Hangover. And you've heard covered by a lot of people, including this version by a band known as Spanky and Our Gang. Okay, Margo, can you hear me? Uh, let me see. Let me get you up there. Try it one more time. Mm-hmm. Margo, are you there? Okay, hang on a second. Yeah. There we go. 
got you on the air. We have Margo Gurian on the air with us here. Hi, Margo. Hi. Hi, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing okay. You're you're in beautiful, sunny California, is that correct? Oh, very sunny. <laughs> uh, very sunny. Uh, a friend of mine called and said it was like 108 degrees there. It's in some places, yes. It's only around 100 here. <laughs> well, I've been, I, I gave everybody the background and, um, you know, about you. And you're like one of my favorite singers, songwriters. From, and I know you're not known as a singer. A lot of the articles that talk about you refer to your voice as kind of like uh, kind of half-baked. But I really, really love your vocals. Well, it's accidental, actually, uh, because I'm really not a singer. Yeah. Um. Um, when I was in college, I used to take my roommate with me if I ever had to play songs for somebody because she could sing and I couldn't. <laughs> and uh, when I started to make demos, um, and they came out really bad. And so my publisher, who was David Rosner, who's my husband, um used to get demo singers and they had beautiful voices and no time <laughs> they and i i would cry i mean i i pleaded with him i said if you play this for anybody they're going to do it wrong and finally one night on think of rain as example um he had me double my voice and it worked. It smoothed out the uh, uh, the high parts and the low parts, made them sound like they all belong together, and it it just worked. So we continued to do that, and unfortunately, everybody just tried to copy the demos, and that's not what I had in mind. <laughs> I wanted somebody, some fantastic arranger, to come along and do a wonderful arrangement, and have one hit after another. Yeah. Didn't happen. Yeah. Well, uh, you kind of inspired a lot of people with your style. I mean, I hear you in people like Claudine Langer. Isabel, I don't know if you're familiar with Isabel Campbell from Bell and Sebastian. Um, no, but I've, I've certainly heard about her. And there's that band Saint Etienne, I think is the name. Saint Etienne. Yes. Y yes. And... and, and uh, Really, it's amazing that that your album, Take a Picture, which came out when was it, 1968, can can, that's right. can still inspire people, and and that's that's what's such a gas about music and about um, this whole thing. I want to go back a little bit though. I want to go back to how did you? There's a period where you were just more of a jazz musician. Can you tell me how that came about? Well, when I left. For college, uh, I and I heard guys playing in the practice rooms, and they were playing jazz, and I just loved it. And I used to sit and listen to one guy in particular. I don't even remember his name, but for a long time, and I listened uh, to jazz, and and I loved it. I I just. Everything else was unhip and square, and the pop music of the day was very, very square. Oh, yeah. Back in the early 60s, it was like, you know, Elvis was in the Army, and we had people like Fabian and Frankie Avalon and stuff. Just terrible stuff. Yeah. So, 
nobody listened to that, and everybody was into Miles and Coltrane and West Montgomery, and, you know, I could go on and on. But um, I really loved jazz and never really listened to any pop music until my friend Dave Frischberg played God Only Knows by right. the Beach Boys for me. Right. We just played that a few minutes ago. We played the Stacks of Tracks version of that. And when I talked about how it inspired, I guess you sat down and wrote Think of Rain after That's that. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but there's a period in there. I know you were hanging out with guys like, was it Ornette Coleman was one of your? Well, I went to the Lenox School of Jazz, and that was a three-week thing in the summer. And Ornette was a student, and I was put in a group with him. And um, ultimately, it was Max Roach, who was the head of the group, that got me to write something for them. And they actually played it. It, it was really pretty wild. And um, it was an amazing experience. This was all pre-Think of Rain and pre-Beach Boys. Right. And... Uh, uh, so hang out with them? Well, for three weeks I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I noticed uh, you spent time at MJQ. Was that a, um, a, a university or a group? No, MJQ was a publishing company that was owned by John Lewis of the Modern Jazz Quartet right. and Gunther Shore, mm -hmm. who is a serious composer, but um, uh, a huge Duke Ellington fan and, and very into jazz. Gunther was into everything and is an amazing musician uh he won a pulitzer prize for a symphonic work <clears throat> about uh four years ago uh just an amazing musician and they signed me to mjq i was really their only songwriter they had mostly musicians and um so they asked me to write words for uh, different um, composers, music, right. like Arif Martin and John Lewis himself asked me to write words for him, and uh, so I did it. I mean, it was a um, great experience. The songs weren't all that cool, but... Right. You wrote for people like Chris Connor as well. I've got that track uh, that you emailed me a little bit later. I'll be playing Oh, it. that was... Well, that was... Uh, the result of my having had an appointment at Atlantic Records. And they signed me as a singer. And we did one session, and it was just dreadful. <laughs> and I, I was, they were telling me to sing out, and I can't sing out. I can't sing. And, um. Well, I disagree, but anyways. Well, it, it was a dreadful session. You can really take my word for that. And so it was not released, but one of the songs that I did was called Moonride, and they had Chris Connor record it, and that was my first recording ever. And I was still in college. I was <clears throat> about, uh, I don't know, 18, 19, and it, it was a huge kick. Give me, uh, there's a, a an era in music where it seems like there were songwriters and then there was performers. If you could give me a feel, uh, w did you work out of a building in New York, like the Br the Brill Building, or, or not? Not really. I almost did. Um, 
let me talk about that for a second because I I still think it's an amazing cultural goof that singer songwriter thing. Um, there were songwriters and there were artists and they were different and songwriters wrote for artists and you had people like Cole Porter and and Rogers and Hart and you know all these great great songwriters and as uh, things changed Bob Dylan the Beatles um, people began to have to write their own songs and that's why I got that that record that's why I did um, take a picture right in the first place my feeling was that if you wrote and you could breathe you could get a record deal because um, I certainly didn't consider myself a singer. Well, yeah, the, uh, kind of the Bob Dylan era changed that, where everybody did. all of a sudden. But let's. Uh, but uh, what what it did, Mark, is it forced um, talented performers who were perhaps not so talented as writers to write, and it it forced talented writers to start performing. Now, every once in a while, uh, you got a great connection, like somebody like Elton John. And, but most of the time, I think it caused music after the Beatles and the Beach Boys, who could do both of these things. Uh, there were so many people that couldn't that it forced music down a notch, as far as I was concerned. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a, a glut after a while, and and, and uh, it's kind of funny, but, but it was great for a little while, and yeah. then, then everybody was out there thinking they were a singer-songwriter. Well, you had to, because you couldn't get signed by a record company right. unless you wrote and gave them the publishing. Right. I, I mean, uh, I'm, the name Randy Newman came to mind. Uh. What, what an incredible songwriter, but his voice... I mean, my wife can't even listen to him. <laughs> you know, I, he's he's a an acquired taste. He is so good. He is such a great songwriter that I don't mind him. But I'd rather listen to Harry Nilsson doing Randy Newman. Right, right. Because he's such an incredible singer. Yeah, I, I am such a fan of Randy Newman's, but when guys like Joe Cocker take his songs and just transform them, <laughs> they're just, it's just incredible. But before we get into your success in the late 60s, I really want to try to cover the middle 60s part. What were you doing between, say, your jazz years and Pet Sounds? Well, were, were you able to make money writing? No. Oh, no, absolutely not. Um I was married to a jazz musician, and listening to pop music was verboten. Um, he would uh, uh, come home from gigs very angry. He said because they began um, they began to book jazz groups with folk groups, and he was part of the Jerry Mulligan Quartet. Oh, okay. And so he would come home from a gig and say, if I trip over one more damn guitar, <laughs> <laughs> he was angry about it. And the, the whole music scene was changing, but none of us listened to it to hear what was happening. And um, ultimately, Jerry Mulligan did a record called, If You Can't Beat Them, Join Them. Mm -hmm. And 
but my husband was not of that mind. And so you, uh, let's say, uh, in the mid-60s, you were writing primarily for jazz musicians until, yes. until you heard Pet Sounds come along. That's it. Yeah. Um, and, and not making any money at all. <laughs> were there, was there, did you have friends in, say, the pop music biz at all, like Carol King? Did you bump up against these people at all? Or? No, I, I have never met any of them. I met um, Spanky. But I met her when um, I went to one of their rehearsals at, uh, uh, again, Dave Frischberg's direction. He, uh, I also knew Bobby Darrow, who was producing Spanky. Right. And uh, Dave suggested I go up there and play them some songs. Right. For, and, for those in the audience that don't know who we're talking about, it's Spanky and Our Gang. I just played, before we got on the air, uh, Spanky and Our Gang's version of Sunday Morning, which really was your uh, introduction uh, to, I guess, the pop music world. It was, a, I guess, a, that was the thing that really got you going. So uh, could you tell me how that came about? You were just talking about how you um, gave that song to them or how you presented that. How did yes, that happen? Yes, they, they were rehearsing um, in a warehouse in New York. And uh, I was given the address and just told to go up there. And I did, and they were playing, and it was very embarrassing because everything stopped when I opened this door. And they looked at me like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and then somebody said, what are you doing here? And I looked and looked for Bobby Doro and couldn't find him. And I said, um, uh, Bob asked me to come on up. And uh, they said, oh, he's in there, and they pointed to a control room that I hadn't seen. And I went in there, and uh, they stopped playing. <clears throat> and they said, well, what do you have? And I said, well, I have some demos. And they said, well, throw them on. Everybody was in there. And I played them uh, Think of Rain and Sunday Morning, and maybe another one, I don't remember, but they liked both of those. And... By that time, I think I knew that I was going to do some recording. And Spanky, when, when they said they really liked Sunday morning, I said, it's yours. They said, don't you want to save it for yourself? And I said, hey, if you want to do it, please be my guest. And, and the song ended up selling uh, millions of copies. That's... Well, it, it charted, and... Um, uh, they had just come off Sundays will never be the same. Right. So they, they had a, the three Sunday songs. They also have that one, Lazy Sunday, I think. Uh, or, Lazy or Day. Lazy oh. Day, right, where they talk about a Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. A and um, so uh, they did your song. It charted. Uh, what I don't want to ask what kind of money you saw, but did you do okay after that? Um, not really. As a matter of fact, I remember my mother saying to me one day, all you need is one hit, and then everything will be easy. <laughs> and it, it didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, I had one hit, and that was it. There were a lot of records at that time, because people would do records and cover pop hits. Right. The, the, the albums in those days, the, the albums were, they would have like the hits on them and then they would cover like contemporary pop hits. That's right. For example. So I had, I had records of Sunday morning by the Ed Sullivan Orchestra. Right. By Oliver. And Richard Groove Holmes. <laughs> you 
you know, um, a, a lot of uh, people that really did not sell records, but then there were some covers by Julie London and uh, Carmen McRae. So uh, there were some good people, but <clears throat> Carmen, for instance, I felt it, it was the wrong material for her. Somebody was forcing her to do pop, and she was such a great jazz artist. They should have left her alone. Yeah, but you know how it was. There was all that pressure in those days because it, right. it, it was the late sixties. Everything was mod and then like like hippie and right. and everything else. So okay, Sunday morning comes out by Spanky and our gang. It's uh, kind of a big hit, top ten hit. And uh, what was your next step after that? Where'd you go from there? Did did, did you record your album right away? Take a picture. Um, well, let's see. I guess. At around that time, yes, I recorded the album, but they wanted me to perform, and I didn't want to. Hmm. So really nothing happened after that. I mean, there were a few plays on the radio, but nothing happened. They, they didn't promote it because they felt I wouldn't promote it. Right, and you, uh, you had a problem with stage fright. By the way, do you still have stage fright? Well... I don't know that it's really stage fright. I just never wanted to perform. Having been married to a performer, a jazz musician, um, I, I didn't like what I saw of the business and the control that, that people had over you. Managers, agents told you where to be, what to wear, when to smile. It, it just, it didn't seem all it was cracked up to be when you were a child and wanted to be a big star. Right. There's a lot of hassle in performing. I've been in a few bands myself. Oh, let me just take this moment to say we're speaking with Margot Gurian. Uh, could you pronounce your last name for Gurian? me? Gurian. Okay, it is Gurian. Uh, yes. some, uh, some people might say Gurian. But, and and uh, some say Gurian. And <laughs> just... But we are talking with Margot by phone, uh, Southern California, and... Uh, Anyhow, so Take a Picture comes out. It, I'm not going to say flop, but you sold how many copies? You well, think? It, it didn't sell. I mean, it didn't do anything. As a matter of fact, I, uh, within a year, found it in the 39 cent bin. Oh, I got my greatest records when I was young in the 39 cent <laughs> bin. <laughs> that wasn't one of them, though, um, although it is reissued, of course, everyone, and it's definitely recommended here by the Sunday Morning Hangover. I want to ask you, who do you remember who played with you on that record, uh, with, what your session musicians were, who they were, or anything like that? You know, not, not as well as if I had run the sessions, you know, where I actually knew the people. Um, John Hill was the producer, and he was the one that hired the musicians. I knew... Um, some of them, Paul, oh, what was his name, a wonderful pianist, who I think had been a jazz pianist, actually. Um, it wasn't like the Wrecking Crew or any of those guys no. like Hal Blaine or anything like no. that, huh? No, they were all studio guys. Where did you record it, New York? In New York, at Columbia Studios. Columbia Studios in 1968. Yes. And, okay, so um, the album comes out, you're not touring with it, right. uh, it kind of disappears. Then what did you do? Um, I really, 
really didn't do much. Uh, we moved from New York to California. Oh, I married David. That was that was a biggie. Your manager. Uh, he was my publisher. Your publisher. Right. Is it was it hard to work and you know be married to somebody you're working with? Oh no, not at all. I don't. Uh, no, it was uh, very easy um, because we saw eye to eye, and he's got wonderful taste, and um, so it it was really easy. And as a matter of fact, when we moved to California, um, I was still writing and doing a few demos, but he began to uh, work with some people that were really talented, and I would uh, produce things with him. And um, so I, I kept my hand in music that way. So you you kind of were a co-producer with... Uh with your husband. Yeah, there was uh, a group called Wool that we produced, mm -hmm. and there was a, a guy named Van Dunson who's an absolutely brilliant um, songwriter and singer. Hmm. And uh, nothing ever happened with his album, and I hope desperately that one day... What happened with my album will happen with his. Could you spell that, 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 that gentleman's name? Van Dunson? Van Dunson, D-U-N-S-O-N. Because here on KWVA, we have uh, a couple of DJs that are just so heavy into this period you're talking about. I mean, we're just such music freaks, and uh, something like that is, uh, I'd love to run across that in the 99 cent Well, I, I don't know <laughs> if you will, but I have a ton of records here, and if you want one, I'd be happy to send you one. Oh, that'd be just great. Because uh, you will love his music. He's really, really talented. There's a show called Snap, Crackle, and Pop that is just dedicated to this kind of pop music that's on Fridays. And I know my friend Craig might be listening right now. Big shout out. Oh, but, you know, I know Snap, Crackle, and Pop from MySpace. Right. There you go. <laughs> the same guy. Yeah. Uh, good guy. Craig Lev every Friday, everybody at 10 o'clock in the morning. So you really didn't release anything in the early 70s? No. And... um because I noticed you have, okay, you have reissues of three albums. You have, of course, the reissue of uh, Take a Picture yeah. on Franklin Castle Records. And then this un amazing CD called 25 Demos. And I'd like to talk a little bit with you about that. Sure. These demos are from pretty much um, a wide range of time, say uh, late 60s into the 70s. Uh, tell me, Tell me a little bit or anything you could think of about these demos and what you think of them. Are you, are you, yes. are you pleased with this release? Yes. Because I know there was a European release back in 2000 that kind of had the same stuff on it. Uh, yes, a uh, British release called Thoughts, I think. Right, Thoughts. That's your other CD. So you actually have three CDs out there. Well, I don't know if you'd say three. There's really two yeah. because that's the same, except... They put on, they wanted bonus tracks, and I, I had used the demos as bonus tracks for other take-a-picture releases. Right. Uh, but I had two songs that I didn't write, but the guys in the office uh, at the publishing company had asked me to do a girl demo of, because they were guys and they had done their guy version. 
And so I, I did it. I recorded it, and um, and they... Was one of them under my umbrella? Yes. I love that song. Isn't that a great song? <laughs> and, and you didn't write that? I didn't write it. Oh, that's why... I didn't write that one, and Why Do I Cry? Because I remember I was corresponding with you. I thought you'd written a song called White Horses, which is sounds exactly like you, but it turned out to be by an artist by called Jackie. Um, no, I didn't didn't write that one. But but uh, you also have that Christmas record. I don't intend to spend Christmas without you. And and uh, how did that song come about? Well, oh, you'll love this. <clears throat> um, Claudine's producer, Claudine Loger's producer, had asked David if I could write a song, a Christmas song, but it was to have no mention of snow or mistletoe or presents or it, it, it was a Christmas song, had to be a Christmas song that was not Christmassy. So, um, I wrote that. There you go. And it's such a great tune and I played it. Um, both versions of Claudine, and I think there's another version out by someone else. St. Etienne had done uh, a version, but it was only, I think, limited to their fan club. That's right. Um, uh, so, okay, we're getting into the 70s now, and there was this song on here, on, I'm talking about 25 Demos, which is available on Franklin Castle, the song about California earthquakes called California Shake. Right. Uh, tell me about how you wrote that and why. Well, when we moved to Los Angeles, um, I was um, terrified that there was going to be some terrible disaster. And um, one day, Richard Bennett, who's a guitar player at the time, playing with Neil Diamond's band, and my husband was Neil Diamond's publisher, and so we went, um, we knew the guys. And Richard came to me with a song, and he wanted to see if we could write together. And he had just this little guitar lick. And I said, oh, that sounds ominous. I said, that sounds like um, a disaster song. <laughs> and I was thinking of the Bee Gees uh, mining disaster. Right, right, New York mining disaster. Right, and I... I, this reminded me in tone of uh, of that song, and so I wrote words to it and um, got a bridge together, and so that's really Richard's music and and my words. <clears throat> but earthquakes were on my mind. <laughs> well, and yeah, yeah. I was in San Francisco in '89 when we had that big shaker <gasps> there. And oh my God, I remember that. I had just come off the Bay Bridge, and and I was maybe a minute off the bridge, and when oh. when it fell down, and I remember everybody on the freeway in Emeryville just stopping, and I said, <laughs> you know, imagine you're on a freeway and everybody just stops. I said, no. this has got to be an earthquake. Oh my <laughs> yeah. God! And and at least you weren't on the bridge. Yeah, I know. I could have, uh, you know, and that was also I was really excited because we had the Bay Bridge series going on between Oakland and San Francisco uh, baseball teams, and and I was on my way home to watch the game. Of course, the game never. And the happened. game was called. <laughs> I remember hearing about that. I was teaching. Yeah. And, uh, it was on someone's television, and they said, "Come in and look." Yeah, and it was just uh, that was insane. Scary. Because speaking of earth, it kind of gave you this uneasy feeling in your belly for the next month. You thought something was going to happen again. 
Well, like the one that happened here in, what was it, 94? Right. You had that big, what was it called, oh. the, the Long Ridge or Longview or something um, North like that? Northridge. Northridge, that's yes. what it was, yeah. And that was really amazing because when it happened, it it was um, something like 3 o'clock in the morning or 4, and you woke up, and it felt like a train had smacked into the house. <laughs> and it kept going. I mean, they always seem much longer in, in, than they are in real time. It may have been 30 seconds. Oh, yeah, things slow down. But it seems <laughs> like forever. By the way, everybody, we're, in case you just tuned in, we're talking with Margot Gurian about earthquakes, uh, Margot Gurian, singer-songwriter. But to get back to the 70s and your career, so basically you kind of kicked back. You were sort of an assistant producer, shall we call you? Well, co co-producer yeah and, i i had the notes and then out of this came that bg's type song hold me dance and how did that come about um my stepson who came to live with us when he was 12 years old was into some of this music and so i got to hear some of it oh and i liked saturday night fever right i thought the music in that was really good right and i thought i'll see if i can write a disco song. And so I used a rather common bass figure, I guess, and, and then just came up with that song after it. And uh, people don't seem to like that one so much. I like it. So, I like it. It was a fun song to do. So when was it that you got into teaching music, teaching music in school? Ah, good point. When John came to live with us when he was 12... I figured no kid is going to live in my house and not take piano lessons. And he was talented anyway, very uh, musical. And we found a teacher who was another kid. I mean, this guy was a junior at UCLA. And I watched him teach John for three or four lessons, and I was amazed at how easy he was making some of this stuff and I said to him, I want to take lessons with you. And he had no room at the time. And a few months later called me and said he had a space open. Did I want it? And I said, I sure did. And so I started, I hadn't played, I hadn't studied piano since I left college. And um, it was a great experience. And Howard, <clears throat> the teacher, turned me into music teacher he said you should teach he said you're good you like kids and i do like kids and one summer he went away and left my unlisted phone number on his answering machine and said uh if you're calling about piano lessons call Margot rosner and because no one called me Margot gurian anymore right and uh Somebody did, and that's how I started teaching. And you eventually wrote that book. It's called uh, Chopsticks Variations. Do I have it correct? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I wrote that because what what I found is that children love to hear something that they know, and they were all enamored of the Mozart variations on uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and I thought, what could I write that kids 
would know. And I came up with the chopsticks variations. And in some of the easier ones, uh, if you know chopsticks, you know one hand. <laughs> then the other hand uh, does something else. Right. And, by the way, still available on uh, the Internet, folks. I don't want to say where because <laughs> we are okay. a non-commercial okay. station. But chopsticks it, it variations. coming out as a CD. Shortly. Oh, that's nice. It's, we've, we've talked about that. And there's um, a wonderful thing in the works in Korea. They are putting out a double album, Beatball Records, um, which will have Take a Picture and 25 demos and 16 words and the video, and they're putting one of the chapsticks variations on. They... they have put just about everything I have on record. I'd like to speak about 16 words. Okay, so you were a piano teacher. You wrote the book. We're getting into the 90s and the OOs. Right. And we have this wonderful president uh, that has just ruined everything. Mm -hmm. And you put out a song called 16 Words, which is basically the justification for going to war with Iraq by George Bush in the song, but also you wrote uh, words around his quote. And tell me how that came about. No, I, I, I wrote, there is nothing in that song except his words. Okay. Now, I've stretched them out, and I've repeated them. Right. But there is not another word in that song except those 16 words. But here in the computer age, you could look at it on YouTube, 16 words by Margot Gurian. It's really an incredible short uh, film. And um, what was the? How did that get released? What? What? How did that, that whole thing get released? Oh, that, that's another wonderful internet story. Well, um, let's see. Where to start on it? I had read Joe Wilson's book, oh, uh, yeah. "The Politics of Truth." Valerie Plame's husband, everybody. That's right. The spy that was. Oh, well, never mind. Well, he was <laughs> a former ambassador to Iraq. Right, but but everybody's uh, now he, tuned in. To he had been quite a hero yes. to the former Bush administration, George H.W. Right. And um, and now they're investigating Cheney and Scooter Libby for outing his wife, uh, Valerie. Valerie Plame, as a CIA agent. Imagine that, the government outing a CIA agent. Anyhow, so you had read the book. I had read the book, and I... I had, well, I had done a lot of reading about this, and the idea popped into my mind to, to do a song with only those words. And I worked it out, and we recorded it, and then we had a young man named um, James Ritano do the video. He had been a friend of my stepson, John, and he did what I thought and still think it's a spectacular video. I think it's well done. I think it's funny. Um, I, I just really love it. And We're talking about 16 Words by Margot Gurian. Check it out on YouTube. Once the video was done, I put it up on MySpace. And I get contacted by a record label in Britain and they want to put it out. And we thought, great. And uh, Anthony Hall is the man's name, and 
what is the label? Pure Mint mm-hmm. is the label. And they put it out, and now I need a cover for it. And I see that there's a guy in Chicago who does some artwork that I was really attracted to named Mike Adams on MySpace. So I contacted Mike and asked him if he wanted to do a cover. It's his cover. This this whole release practically came about because of MySpace. Wow. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that is uh, just this whole Internet music thing is like, how do you get your hands? I know it's driving the record companies crazy, but it really makes a lot of stuff available and it makes people aware of artists like you. And that that leads me to my next question. We're going a lot longer than I thought we were, were going to. But um, just to kind of get down to uh, brass tacks, when were you aware that people started getting interested in your music again? And oh. And if you could just talk about that for a second, I've got to go get the door. Okay, I heard it. Ding dong. Um, 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 around 1999 or 2000, uh, we received a royalty statement that had all the songs on the album. It was for airplay in Japan. And uh, David said, Marco, these, these are all the album songs. And what we found is that a pirate record had been released. And I was overjoyed. I wasn't going to get paid for it, but I finally had a CD instead of an LP, which nobody could play anymore. Yeah. So now I have a CD in my hot little hands, and I I don't know how it happened. I don't know why they put it out. But we get a call from a record company in Pennsylvania, um saying, could they release Take a Picture? Um, They said that they cater to uh, collectors, and that record is on every collector's list. And the guy says to David, tell Margot she's a star in Japan. (laughs) And I'm thinking, oh, sure. But I guess it was after that that this uh, pirate release came out. So um, did you see any... uh decent income off of these reissues at all or in- um not a whole lot but the fact that they got reissued uh made other uses possible right and so when you when you add up all those other uses and um it it comes into um nice little checks from ascap and yeah. um it, it's just funny because now there's i i think didn't you say there was a TV commercial at one point that was using your, your music, or am I hallucinating? TV commercial. Well, there was a porn show <laughs> <laughs> on HBO <laughs> that has been shown and re-shown, and they used five songs, I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> um, I mean, I couldn't watch it. It was really grossed me out. But it's made more money than just about anything I've ever done this is just an amazing story that somebody you know in the 60s could put out one 
record album. That's right. And here we are in 2008, and it's still having an impact on music. And and um, I'm just going to kind of wind it up here. I could talk to you, Margot, for another hour. I well, mean, call me when you're not on the radio one day, and we'll have a chat. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we could talk about atheism and, and the Bush administration. Oh, I would love it. But I wanted to ask you, do you still smoke? Uh can't you hear it? <laughs> I was going to say yeah, no. Yeah, my voice is about an octave lower than it used to be. Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, but I'm too old to die young. <laughs> Therefore. All right. Well, as my dentist said, he can't. He. he can't admonish me about my guilty pleasures. Oh, well, you know, what are you going to do? Well, <laughs> anyways, um, thank you, Margo. You're a real sweetie. Oh, thank you, Mark. I love your page. I love going to visit. Yeah, and uh, maybe we'll talk again soon. And, uh, of course, I will be playing your songs uh, on the Sunday morning hangover for, for many years to come. Um, thank you. Well, that's where my voice comes in. It's a Sunday morning hangover. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. We've been talking to Margot Gurian, uh, author of uh, Sunday Morning, many books, uh, and uh, numerous CDs. Thanks a lot, Margo. You are so welcome. Good to talk to All you right. more. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. track from Margot Gurian from Take a Picture. I want to play a track now by Chris Conner that came out in the late 50s, one of Margot's first 
songwriting ventures. This is a track uh, on here called Moonride. I built me a ship one foggy night And I waited until the time was right Then I checked the controls and got ready to sail And still I live to tell the tale of my moonride I saw me and Manny, a wonderful sight On that hair-raising, nail-biting, frightening flight Till I reached the moon in all its glory And still I live to tell the story of my moonrise I hit the moon with a great big bump I got out of my ship and decided to jump I jumped a mile if I jumped an inch And when I came down I landed in a clinch With the moon men They bound my hands and they bound my feet And they thought they found something new to eat When they boiled the water I got pretty scared But don't think for a moment I came unprepared For the moon man I managed to get a hold of my new ray gun filled with rays conserved from the broiling sun. And I heard a maddening, shattering sound as I shot to the uneven, cheese-covered ground, the moon man. I turned around for one last view of the craters and the valleys all purply blue. When I saw a fleet of flying saucers, which were filled with all the law enforcers of the moon man. I ran for everything I was worth. I got into my ship and I headed towards Earth. I hit the world with the moon. And still I live to tell the tale of my moonride, crazy moonride, crazy moonride. All right, that's a Margot Gurian song from the late 50s, Chris Connor, Moonride. That was a great interview with Margot Gurian. Um, hope to do more interviews in the future. We have Radio Tango coming up with... Andrew, before I go, I had so many other Margot Gurian songs I wanted to play for you, but the interview ran long. That was so much fun. This is the Reverend Mark Time here on the Sunday Morning Hangover. I hope to see you next week. This is Margot's version of the song I played by Claudine Langer at the beginning of the set, Think of Rain. (laughs) 